Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. It's been several episodes since we've talked COVID-19 here on the podcast. Several MCHD medics, other listeners have asked for an update episode. In all honesty, we could update COVID-19 for the next week and probably not scratch the surface. It was a nice break to talk about how to avoid stupid errors in EMS, even to talk about TXA and GI bleeds. But today we're going to be all COVID and we're going to try and hit some of the hot topics, some of the specific questions, some of the things you may have seen in the lay press, some things that have been raised here by our folks at MCHD. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a great topic, Casey, because we both had, you know, Twitter questions and email questions and then calls from friends that are not medicine folks and saying, what about you know, this, what about that? I saw this on Facebook. I, I saw this on social media. So let's start with one of those. It's actually had uh, some trials and some evidence. What about dexamethasone for COVID-19 infections? So let off with this one, because this is one of the more promising uh, treatments that we've seen. If you've watched the news, you've likely seen some summary of the recovery trial. This was a trial done in United Kingdom. Uh, the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they took uh, 2,100 or so COVID patients and treated them with six milligrams of Decadron daily and compared those to about 4,300 or so that got standard care. Uh, their primary endpoint was 28-day mortality. So were you dead or were you alive after getting this treatment 28 days later? So pretty pretty good patient-oriented outcome. And what they found was fairly astonishing, really. Uh, steroids have been tried in, you know, over the 20 years or so that I've been in medicine, tried for everything. Stroke, spinal cord injury, ARDS, sepsis. I mean, you name it. We could keep going on down the line forever for things that steroids have been tried in. And we've been hopeful for steroids to work in all of these uh, disease processes, but never have I seen a mortality curve with uh, steroid treatment that looks like the one that we saw from this study. Now, if you look at the overall mortality in the study, they saw a 23% overall mortality with Decadron, 25.7% mortality with standard care. That's not an insignificant uh, improvement, but when you pull out the patients that were intubated, they saw a 29.3% mortality when treated with Decadron versus a 41.4% mortality as compared to standard care in intubated patients. So a very stark and, and significant improvement there, especially when you consider dexamethasone is cheap, uh, generic, really not a, a ton of side effects. And again, this was six milligrams given daily up to 10 days in length or until the patient was discharged. So if I go to the hospital, I got COVID-19 next week and you're taking care of me and I need oxygen, I think I want dexamethasone. Right, I think that's all of our, all of our patients were admitted to Ben Tobbitt's in our guidelines. Yeah, I think it's, them. it's basically standard of care now. Now, 
if you're out there listening and you've got a cough and some body aches and you're COVID positive and you're fighting it off at home and you're thinking about calling your primary care doctor because you heard us talking about the recovery trial and dexamethasone and COVID, a uh, little disclaimer sort of warning, there was a trend towards harm in non-oxygen requiring patients. So in other words, the patients who weren't that sick that got dexamethasone, they did worse than those that just got standard care. So I'm not writing Decadron for patients to go home with. I'm not writing Decadron for patients with oxygen saturations of 95%. This is only for hospitalized patients in the sicker cohort. So bottom line, if you get sick enough from COVID-19 to need oxygen, you should probably get dexamethasone too. Now, this has not really been shown to be time sensitive yet, so probably not an EMS therapy, but definitely encouraging. And, you know, when we're dealing with a total unknown like COVID-19 to have anything that we think is going to decrease the mortality, it's pretty nice for a, a win. Right. And there's been some other stuff out there, Casey, about uh, inhaled steroids, inhaled betamethasone or inhaled uh, steroids of different types uh, in the lay press uh, mainly. Uh, but there's not a whole bunch of science behind it. There's a randomized controlled trial underway. Uh, and I would say my official stance on that is let's wait. Let's wait. I mean, there is very little downside in these, but there's not a lot of evidence that these are going to be beneficial, especially in a patient that's not hospitalized and doesn't have an oxygen requirement. Yeah, and just for non-medical folks out there, the dexamethasone used in the recovery trial was uh, given in the IV form. Yep. All right. On to the next topic. What about remdesivir? And I, I love your notes here. Can we please talk about an important outcome like mortality? So I'll just let you on this one. But I mean, I would agree. Is this another Tamiflu trial where we're looking at an outcome uh, and it doesn't pass the so what test? Well, I'm going to I'm going to be a little uh, a little more positive than Tamiflu, a little more reserved than dexamethasone. We're going to fall somewhere in between. First of all, how does remdesivir work? It's an RNA polymerase inhibitor. So basically this drug is was developed to try and inhibit viral replication. The uh, pharma literature and, and, and big pharma is littered with antiviral medications that have not worked, you know, in, in true patient populations and in, in real studies. Uh, this study was done internationally, so it was a um, multi-country study, also in the New England Journal of Medicine. They were about 500 hospitalized COVID patients in each group. Their primary endpoint was time to recovery. Uh, a lot of the EBM gurus that, that parsed this study were concerned that really we're con what, what we're mostly worried about in COVID is are you living or are you dying? So we would like to see the endpoint as mortality as opposed to time to recovery, which is a little bit subjective. But in the end, they showed the recovery time in the placebo group of this uh, study to be 15 days as opposed to 11 days in the remdesivir group. Now, I'm getting some uh, negative uh, pictionary motions from my, from my colleague off to my right. But I will say that if you are a sick hospitalized COVID patient and you get remdesivir and you're better in 11 days as opposed to 15, that's a bigger deal than the perceived benefit of an extra uh, day well with Tamiflu. So if you're unaware, Tamiflu is a drug that we use for influenza and it's always sort of knocked because 
uh, you only get about a day's improvement. So if the flu lasts 10 days with Tamiflu, you're better in nine days. Uh, is that really a big deal or not? Uh, again, this is debatable, not for our discussion today. But if you're a COVID hospitalized patient and we are running out of hospitalized or hospital beds, excuse me, and we're running out of ventilators and I can get you better four days sooner, that could be a pretty big system-wide benefit to have hospital beds turned over at 11 instead of 15. So I don't want to totally poo-poo on remdesivir. Now, I would like to see whether or not mortality is improved. And in this study, it was smallish, you know, 500 in each group. There was a trend to lower mortality in the remdesivir group as well. It wasn't statistically significant. So we're going to need larger studies. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's a total nothing burger. Um, the placebo group, however, if you want to pick the study a little bit, did tend to be a little sicker, trended to be sicker in this study. There were more ventilated patients in the placebo, placebo yeah. group as opposed to the treatment group, which that always could make the treatment look, group look better. And the elephant in the room with rendesivir is it's about $3,000 a course, and everyone out there is running low. So is it Tamiflu all over again? Again, if we can clear beds over in 11 as opposed to 15 days, I think that could be a benefit, even if the mortality is not as as stark as dexamethasone. But we need more we need more evidence in a 500 patient study. So stay tuned. All right, let's pivot to some non drug therapy, Casey, and talk about proning. This idea of flipping patients over on their tummy, which actually sounds a lot easier than it really is in the sick patient with you know, lots of lines and, and drips and things and Foley catheters hanging out. Um, let's talk about specifically in hospitalized patients, what's the evidence, how does it work, and then pivot and talk in EMS or in just in hospital in awake patients. Is this something that the patients will naturally do on their own? So my experience with proning was really the sickest of sick ARDS patients from, from ICU training you know, 10 or 10 or 12, 15 years ago. And there were specific beds even that these patients were placed in called rotoprone beds. And it was a big deal because you had, you know, most these patients had central venous access. They were intubated. A lot of them were on, you know, on, on dialysis. And, you know, they had every kind of cord and line and tube running out of them. And then we're going to flip them over on their belly. So my experience with proning was, was, very, very, very labor intensive. Um, but before we even get to what we're doing with COVID and is there a role for proning the awake patient, not the intubated patient, why, why prone in the first place? And basically it removes intrathoracic weight from the dorsal lung regions. And the dorsal lung regions have dense lung tissue. They have higher perfusion. So by proning, you get better ventilation and perfusion matching. So you can improve oxygenation is the thought. Now, most, the most significant, the most impactful data comes from a trial called the ProSIVA trial. Um, this was in very sick ARD patients, and they showed a 17% 28-day mortality improvement with proning. So early on in COVID, even, you know, in, in China, early on in, you know, in January and February, smart pulmonologists, emergency physicians decided, what about taking these very hypoxic patients with COVID and proning them, basically flipping them over on their belly? And small studies out of China suggest improved PaO2, uh, low rates of progression to intubation when proning, 
paired with low fluids, paired with non-invasive ventilation, paired with high-flow nasal cannula. Uh, there's a case series out of New York City of about 50 patients that showed oxygen saturation improvement from 84 to 94% when proning these patients. About a third of those, however, progressed to intubation. Is there contraindications to proning? Well, you can't prone someone with you know, spinal cord injuries. You can't prone someone with increased ICP. Uh, vomiting, seizure, you know, the, the you know, peri-arrest patient, you don't want to flip them over on their belly. Um, so the idea being is that if these patients are, you know, resistant to oxygen therapy, you know, really struggling with oxygenation, if we can just by position improve their physiology, maybe we can stave off that, that need for, for a ventilator. And again, when you're running low on ventilators, this can be a big deal. Now, is there randomized study that shows mortality benefit proning awake patients? There's not. This is all, at this point, still a bit theoretical and sort of a kitchen sink type thing that if you're COVID positive, you've been sick for five or six days, you finally come into the ED, you're setting 80% on a couple liters nasal cannula. Maybe you're one of the silent hypoxic patients that, man, we really like to oxygenate a little better, try to stave off more invasive treatments. What if we can flip you over onto your belly or onto your side? And that's really where we're at with this. Um, can we do this in EMS? Um, probably not ready for prime time. There's some very small like case report type studies showing feasibility for proning in, in helicopter EMS, but really until some mortality evidence arrives, uh, there's no role for proning in, in MCHD ground transports. Anything you want to add to that one? No, I think that covers it all. I mean, okay. it's... Uh, I think it's a great idea to have people kind of get to their position of comfort. I, th I see some of the patients, not not prone, but just get to their their level where uh, where they recruit more more lung tissue, uh, and so I'm all for that. Uh, I I do would agree with you 100 percent though that with lots of lines and tubes and a critically ill patient, this is, needs the proper training and manpower uh, and the right team to go and do this. Yeah, the special. Uh, you could really, really hurt someone. Special beds, special pillows, uh, you know, special positioning. Folks that really know what they're doing. I'm going to toss one to you. We just had a discussion around the office in the past, really, 48 hours or so uh, regarding re return to work policies, some new CDC guidance. Let's update the listeners out there who aren't following the CDC return to work guidelines right. like we are. Uh, what's what's the new What's the new statement? How is it going to change what we do here at MCHD? Is it going to change what we do here at MCHD? Right. And why, why were some of these changes and some of these uh, policies Well, I think that, uh, we'll start with the why. Uh, it's really uh, an emphasis on getting away from a testing-based strategy to a, a, a clinical-based strategy. We've always used the clinical criteria at MCHD, uh, which before was 72 hours fever-free. Uh, and resolving symptoms, and then uh, at least 10 days from the onset of your illness or your positive test. Uh, that has changed uh, to 20, a recommendation for 24 hours of fever-free, uh, and then 10 days from the onset of your positive test or your symptoms. Why is this uh, being changed? I think it's a couplefold. Is that uh, we know from some studies that you can shed inactive virus, so virus uh, is still detectable by the PCR. It still has the RNA, 
uh, that's picked up by the PCR machine. But when you try to culture it in live cells, it doesn't reproduce. We, we, we don't know 100%, but we don't think that there's a lot of infectivity risk. Uh, and we've had, uh, Casey and I have had patients here that we've followed out with our, our safety uh, folks uh, that have been four weeks, five weeks from a positive test, and they're still coming up positive, and their employer's not wanting them back to work, and they're completely well and completely recovered. So I think that you're seeing this around the nation. They're trying to be rational and, and getting people back to work, knowing that when they're more symptomatic, they're likely more likely to spread the virus. Um, there's really a minimal role for this, this testing-based uh, strategy to continue. Um, they do recommend that in higher-risk patients and immunocompromised patients, th- there may be a role for testing in that 10 days, Casey, goes to 20 days. So in a nutshell, it went from 72 hours fever-free to 24 hours fever-free. Uh, it had previously been seven days, but it's been 10 for a little bit, 10 days from the onset of your symptoms your first symptom or your positive test. Um, so I think it's going in the right direction where we thought it should go, which is a clinical-based strategy that we've always used here. Plus you're burning a lot less tests, right? We don't have enough tests uh, in the country to give to every person who's worried about an infection, let alone to follow up everybody with three or four or five tests until they become negative for two tests. And, and just for historical sake, this has been the standard practice for influenza for other viral outbreaks you know standard 10 days with 24 hours fever free return to work so even 72 hours which is where we are now and are likely going to stay just yeah, out, we're, we're out kind of, of on the conservative side yeah. of it and we we like where we are so we i just want to say out of an abundance of caution can i say it you can say there it. we go we're going to keep it at 72 it's hours kind of interesting one of my other colleagues who uh you know, always gets up in arms of like, you know, why should I give different isolation and uh, uh, instructions for the COVID than I would give from the flu? Guess what? They're the same, right? If you think you have the flu, what do you need to do? You need to self-isolate at home. Yep. You self-isolate at home till you're not sick anymore. And I would, I would argue that if we've not proven anything over the past six months is this might be a little worse than the flu. I know that if you go back and listen to January episode, I ate my own words that uh, this may need to be adapted or edited if things worsen. Well, from January to July, things have definitely worsened and we just need to be cautious. You know, we've got a, especially as healthcare workers, we've got a limited number of providers. And from our standpoint at MCHD, there's an extra two days of of holding out and and self-quarantining to prevent that risk of that person coming back on the job and infecting the whole fire station, the ED, the clinical department, uh, abundance of caution is, is warranted here. And couldn't agree more, Casey. Uh, you know, clearly the mortality is that this is a, a much more dangerous tenfold, 20 fold more dangerous disease than the influenza. That being said, the influenza is right around the corner. So we're going to have, not only are we going to have the COVID, we're going to have the influenza at the end of the day. Uh, we don't want you. We don't want our folks coming to work to take care of our patients while they're sick. We need to stay home when you're sick. That that guides us into the next next topic to PPE. So this is the one, Casey. I think is um, I think has a ton of controversy, and you can go back and listen to some of our first podcasts on this. And we're big believers because the proof's in the pudding to us is that we were big proponents of. Uh, PPE to protect our people early on. Our chiefs were very good at sourcing it and making sure that we had 
uh, reusable PPE, so our crews had it, and we haven't had uh, a health a healthcare related from a patient transfer from a patient um, illness in one of our employees. All all the illnesses we've have of COVID in our employees have been from an external source. They got it from home, or they got it from the fire station, or they got it someplace else. It wasn't from a patient. So we've always been big proponents that if you wear your PPE, your eye protection. Uh, gown, gloves, uh, mask, that you're, it's going to keep you safe. But where's the evidence for that, Casey? Is there really any evidence for it? Well, I specifically want to talk about gowns because we've gotten some questions from some external sources from in-house about gowns. Is there evidence for masks? Yeah, there's good, there's good mask evidence. There's a, a Lancet meta-analysis from back in June that really shows the combination of of mask, gloves, eyewear, gowns, plus social distancing, it's effective. And if you look at the countries who are succeeding at tamping down COVID cases, they're doing all these things. Gowns is sort of the, the outlier here in that I've been exercising outside a bit last couple weeks. It's the miserable part of the Texas summer and it's hot. And so to actually take care of patients with a mask, with eyewear, with a uniform on, with gloves, and then to throw on that gown here in, in Montgomery County, it's really hot and it's sweaty. And I can 100% empathize with the medics who are sick of throwing the gown on. When it comes to the N95, yeah, there's no option and there's good evidence to support it. But some astute folks have come to me with the question, hey, is there any evidence out there that these gowns help anything? And realistically, there's not a ton. So there's, there are no randomized studies. What exists are a bunch of simulated exposure studies. And most of those, though, are in uh, contact isolation type diseases like uh, Clostridium difficile, diarrhea, things that are, you know, oral fecal transmission that you really have lasting spores also that you don't want to get on your clothes because they can hang out for an extended time period. A lot of these are comparing long sleeve gowns to aprons. So really that's not the question we're asking as EMS providers, it's a gown or, or just our uniform. Is there any difference? That, that study doesn't exist. If you want to look at the data, there's a study by Jefferson in 2011. It's four case control studies. This is from the original SARS. And those case control studies do suggest there's some protection from gowns. Um, Verbeek is another author. If you want to look up Verbeek's gown studies, um, you know, this has even been uh, a, a Cochrane database meta-analysis for however you feel about Cochrane. Most of the time, pretty, pretty well sourced all the sources that are out there. There's a Verbeek update in April um, that, you know, continues to show no randomized studies. Um, but again, suggests you're going to have some benefit with a long sleeve gown as opposed to an apron. I would extrapolate that to say if you have benefit with a long sleeve gown as opposed to an apron, you're probably going to have benefit comparing a long sleeve gown to your uniform. And again, abundance of caution comes into play here. I don't want folks sweating their armpits off. I don't want to be either, but I'd rather sweat a little than have COVID. So bottom line, there's no great evidence for gowns. You know, the study, the randomized study of gown versus no gown and COVID transmission in an EMS setting, boy, that'd be on my Christmas wish list. But I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So for now, we're going to play it safe. We've got a reusable gown option here at MCHD that we're super 
super proud of, super pleased with. Uh, I'm not the one wearing them on every single call, so feel free to throw tomatoes at me. But I also want to keep, keep you all safe and keep everybody COVID-free. So for now, gowns are probably the weakest link in the chain, but we're going to keep them in there try to be as safe as possible. What about COVID-19 and clotting? You know, we've seen you had a case not too long ago of an arterial uh, thrombus causing a stroke in a very young patient that you came to the office and we were talking about. But we've, I think clinically in our clinical practice, we've both seen this, both venous thromboembolism and, uh, you know, uh, uh, more coronary syndromes, more strokes. Is the COVID in and of itself clotogenic? What, what's causing all these arterial and uh, venous occlusions in these COVID patients? I'm not sure I have the what answer. I do have the is it, and the answer is yes. Up to a quarter of hospitalized patients with COVID clot, up to 50% of the ICU patients clot. So when you get sick with COVID enough to be in the hospital, pretty high likelihood of clotting. If you get ICU sick, you can just about flip a coin. So, yeah, we're seeing, you know, acute MI variations uh, from the arterial end. I've seen ischemic limbs from the arterial end. So young patients with, with cold arms and cold legs, strokes in young patients, tons of pulmonary emboli in these folks, which is a real diagnostic dilemma, right? Because you've got a pulmonary disease that's causing pulmonary clots. So why is the patient short of breath and hypoxic? Is it COVID pneumonia or is it COVID PE? Is it both? Uh, really makes for a for a tough a diagnostic dilemma in the in the EDICU setting. There's some early Chinese data that suggests that the worse the D-dimer is, and again, D-dimer is just really a, a clot marker, so elevated when clot is present. I don't want to get too far in the weeds there with talking about D-dimer, but the higher it is in the in in the Chinese patients in this study, the worse the patient's outcomes were. So most patients that are hospitalized now, and again. I would defer this to our intensivists out there because this is not something that I'm really managing in the emergency department. I don't think you are either, but uh, we've, I'm sure we've both seen some evidence of when these sicker COVID patients come, come in, they're being anticoagulated fairly aggressively. Now, that exact protocol and whether it's uh, low molecular weight heparin versus heparin dosing, timing, that's variable. We don't have a good randomized double-blinded study to show mortality benefit there. But if you're saying up to half the ICU patients with COVID-19 are clotting, that's enough for me to say, yeah, we need to anticoagulate those folks. Now, again, the details are still, you know, are still being worked out. But from an EMS standpoint, from an emergency provider standpoint, it really just means we have to keep our, keep our antenna up because we're going to see patients that are younger and healthier with these arterial thrombi, with these uh, venous thromboembolism type presentations. And if it couldn't get worse, I'm going to end up asking you the last little bit, right? What is up with this MISC, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, this Kawasaki-like disease in children? Can you talk about that? And this is just a mind warp. It doesn't even, you know, everything about COVID seems to get complicated and then more complicated. So basically, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is a COVID complication. So kids are getting COVID, they're getting better, and then two to six weeks later, they're getting super sick again. So it's not a complication of the initial COVID infection. It's a post-COVID inflammatory syndrome. So why is this complicated? Well, a lot of the kids, as we know, aren't getting as sick as the adults. So do we even know all the kids that have gotten COVID? We don't. So how are, how are we diagnosing these folks? Well, they have to have fever for 24 hours. They have to have previous COVID or possible previous COVID, less than 21 years old. They have multi-system organ involvement, greater than two organ systems. 
and they're going to have significantly elevated inflammatory markers. So what organ systems can be involved? Skin, these are having every kind of rash imaginable. So if you see a sick kid with a rash right now, this should go high on your list because it's definitely possible. GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, neurologic, respiratory, hepatic, renal, super straightforward, clear as mud. I mean, this is really complicated. I'm glad you took that one. Initially, this was called Kawasaki-like syndrome. So for the listeners out there, what is uh, Kawasaki disease? It's an inflammatory uh, febrile illness of children that is best remembered. I'm not a huge pneumonic fan, but crash and burn is the mnemonic for Kawasaki disease, and it involves conjunctivitis, rash, adenopathy, strawberry tongue, which if you Google that one, see it, you'll not forget it, and then hand and foot edema. So that's the crash, and then five days of fever. So realistically, this multi-inflammatory system, multi-inflammatory system of uh, illness in children is really a lot worse than Kawasaki disease because number one, you only have to have fever for 24 hours. You know, usually when I think of Kawasaki disease in my present or in my practice, most kids don't have fever for five days, but this is 24 hours is all this requires. The other concerning thing with MISC is that about half of these kids present, present in shock and about half of them have cardiac involvement. Only 5% or so or so of Kawasaki disease patients present in shock. So this is one where for the EMS listeners out there, this is definitely one that I would file away in my memory bank because we may be seeing kids with rash, with cardiac failure, with respiratory renal symptoms that are really sick. And kids in cardiogenic shock do not need bomb with fluids. So think about early access, think about early pressors, as opposed to a, you know, a 20 or 30 cc per kilo bolus. If you take a kid with MISC and cardiogenic shock and you give them 20 or 30 cc's per kilo, they're going to be in respiratory failure pretty quick. So that'd be one we'd want to think about early epi or early levofed. And then once they get to the hospital, things like IVIG, steroids, really outside of my wheelhouse, we're going to be seeing a specialist there. So uh, this is a, a super scary disease process. Be on the lookout for sick kids with a rash and be wary of bombing those kids with fluids because about half of them are in cardiac failure. Right. So I think a great synopsis of the of the the new things in COVID or the things since last time that we've done a, a COVID update. So kind of to take it home for the listeners, right? Steroids, dexamethasone works. Make sure it's in someone with an oxygen requirement. They tended towards having worse outcomes if they didn't. Uh, inhaled steroids, jury's out, we don't know. But definitely the, the IV steroids. Remdesivir, remember the antiviral that's been in the lay press? I think the jury's still out there. The mortality benefit, we don't know. Uh, but it did tend to get these people out of the uh, out of the hospital or out of the ICU a little bit sooner. So that may be beneficial. Um, no proning in the truck. Uh, remember, there's uh, we kind of Dr. Patrick went over the mechanism on why proning works. I think if people want to get in the truck, they're not intubated. They want to get to a position of comfort. I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, understand that proning sick ICU patients is is really. Uh, a learned skill, and you got to have a lot of specialized training and equipment for it. Uh, here at MCHD, I think that we are following the right track. Remember, a time and symptom-based return-to-work policy, not this repetitive testing. And then, as Dr. Patrick uh, reiterated, watch out for these kids in shock with a rash. Early pressors, gentle fluids. Um, this is a hard diagnosis to make, and uh, these are going to be very, very sick kids. It's going to be hard to put this one together. Most of these have been seen in, in New England and New York, where the earliest COVID cases were. 
I suspect, you know, we'll start trickling into Texas, you know, into the southeast as, you know, the kind of the COVID wave is hitting here now. Kids will probably trickle into existence, you know, over the next several weeks. I've not personally seen one yet, but it's hard to miss a kid in shock. Hopefully our our medics out there are going to catch this. And really the big the big caveat, the big piece of advice there is just to be careful with the big giant fluid bolus until you're sure that kid's not in cardiogenic shock. As always, we could we could continue talking about COVID for another couple hours. This is just a, a smattering of the of the big lay press sort of pressing issues that have come out over the past few months. As always, if you have other questions or concerns, COVID or non-COVID, please shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please leave us a review or a like wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, we appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.